our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. We often make the mistake of thinking that democracy is inevitable. It is easy to think that we have always been moving towards it, from a less developed past to a more developed future, from various feudal swamps to modern democratic states. But democracy, like any system, is only as strong as the people within it allow it to be. It takes the right people at the right time to bring it about and to maintain it. The things that cause the crumbling of any political system's foundations, including democracies, can exist within the very mixing of the cement that makes up those foundations, or they can appear suddenly from out of nowhere, or even just fade in without you really noticing. The agents of change that can shift a social or political structure, for instance, take a democracy to an autocracy or vice versa, can come in many shapes and many sizes. A linear interpretation of history suggests that democracy is the end game, but that doesn't take into account the various failed starts that the system endured in Europe and elsewhere. These days, it is the de facto system of Europe, but as recently as 30 years ago, that wasn't the case. And further back, in the 1930s, it was barely struggling to compete against a much more powerful and seemingly more stable system, fascism. Up until the Second World War, there was a legitimate fascist party in most Western democracies. It was only the Second World War and the need for militant fascism to be quashed that saw its dismantling at the hands of the Allied powers on most of the European continent, but not on all of it. Revolutions can come from anywhere, and that is what this episode is all about. Hey, what is that? Hey, hey who are you? This is an announcement of the Republic of Amsterdam Radio. We urge all podcast listeners to remain calmly in their homes and not to gather in public places. This is a coup. This podcast has been taken over and the following episode will be conducted accordingly. Welcome to Stuff What You Tell Me. This is a coup de pod. Carnation Revolution. This episode is brought to you by Pride and Glory and Cod. Not God, Cod. There's a thousand and one ways to cook it. You like revolutions? Here's a good one. It starts with a song and is surrounded by flowers. 
In one jubilant day, it overthrew a four-decade-old regime, a military coup and yet somehow bloodless, leftist and yet democratic, and generally very exciting. But first, some background. Coming into the 20th century, Portugal was one of the oldest kingdoms in the world. The first king, Don Afonso Henriques, conquered the land from the Moors and created the country as we know it way back in 1137. In the 15th and 16th centuries, her trade prowess had propelled the tiny country into superpower status with an extensive colonial empire. This century of world domination is immortalized by the poet Luís de Camões in the Lusiads, which paints the Portuguese as heroic discoverers and masters of the sea. This is still the national identity today. By the early 1900s, Portugal's role as superpower had long since diminished, although the colonial territories remained attached. State bankruptcy and mismanagement by the now constitutional monarchy fed the flames of an increasing anti-royal sentiment. This culminated in the assassination of the king in 1908, which was quite an anti-royal move indeed. On October 5, 1910, a revolution brought an end to 800 years of the royal line and turned Portugal into a republic. Out with the old, in with the new, the royal family fled into exile. The blue and white flag became green and red. The national anthem changed from Hail, 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 O King to Heroes of the Sea, Noble People. Democracy had arrived. This era is known as the First Republic. But don't get too attached. It won't last very long. In the course of 16 years, this earnest attempt at democracy would see nine presidents and 44 governments. It has been described by historian Hugh Kay as a period of, quote, Continual anarchy, government corruption, rioting and pillage, assassinations, arbitrary imprisonment, and religious persecution. End quote. The cost of living skyrocketed and the currency plummeted. The republic was failing. The weakness of the government invited challenges. In 1925, there were two failed coup attempts. It was a sign of the instability of the times that the plotters were acquitted. On the 28th of May, 1926, a new military coup was launched. This one would be successful, bringing an end to the failed experiment of democracy and ushering in the dictatorship that would eventually become the Estado Novo, or New State. We are about to be introduced to an immensely important figure. He doesn't burst onto the scene like other dictators, marching into the capital, flanked by tanks and soldiers, fake medals strapped to his chest. It's almost as if he never even wanted to be a dictator at all. Antonio de Oliveira Salazar was born in a tiny village in the north of Portugal. The list of famous people from that area begins and ends with him. He entered the seminary and even considered becoming a priest at one point, don't they all? Instead, he went to university in nearby Coimbra, where he studied law and economics and graduated with incredibly high grades. He became an assistant professor and got his doctorate. He was respected for his top-notch brain, and in 1921, he was persuaded to run for a seat in Parliament. He won, went once, and never returned. He couldn't stand the chaos and disorder in the chambers of democracy. After the coup d'etat in 1926, he was convinced to join the brand new government as Minister of Finance. After his proposals to control spending were rejected, he promptly resigned. He had lasted five days. Within two hours, he was back on the train to Coimbra. The new government was struggling. The main problem Portugal was facing at the time was the enormous public debt. Salazar's famous brain and his knack for economics meant that he was in high demand. 
Again and again, he made excuses and turned down appointments to return to public office. He was unwilling to return to a system in which he felt his ideas could be overruled. With financial collapse imminent, he finally returned as finance minister in 1928. This time, the new president, Oscar Carmona, had managed to convince Salazar by agreeing to his demands, that he would have complete control of finance and would have the power to veto any and all government expenditure. The president didn't have much choice. Within one year, Salazar had pulled off a miracle. Not only had he balanced the budget and stabilized the currency, but for the first time in living memory, he had created a surplus. From near-certain financial ruin to prosperity in such a short period, it's no surprise that he was popular. Salazar continued to expand his powers and became known as the reliable bedrock of Portuguese politics. As prime ministers came and went, Salazar's image as an honest and effective minister grew stronger and stronger. In 1932, President Carmona decided that this respected figure would make an effective prime minister. Considering that Salazar would hold the office for over 35 years, you must admit that Carmona was onto something. The unwilling dictator was now in charge. Salazar consolidated his power and rewrote the constitution, creating the Estado Novo, or New State, in 1933. This is the regime that would rule the nation for the next 41 years. In a nutshell, the Estado Novo was conservative, nationalist, authoritarian, and fervently anti-communist. Because of this, it is often described as a fascist regime. This is a running debate among historians. There are definitely parallels, but Salazar thought that the racism at the heart of Nazism was immoral. Portugal didn't have the death penalty. There were no death camps. However, political rivals were imprisoned, and the secret police, or PID, kept the civilians on their toes. People would basically just disappear. It's important to remember the chaos that preceded his rise to power. Salazar certainly never forgot it. A contemporary British diplomat named George Rendell described the political background as, quote, deplorable, very different from the orderly, prosperous, and well-managed country that it later became under the government of Señor Salazar, end quote. Salazar was a traditionalist. He believed in a set of values that would become known as the three Fs, football, Fatima, and Fadu. Football was and is the national sport. Fatima is a pilgrimage city and in this context represents devout Catholicism. Fadu is the traditional folk music, of which Amalia Rodriguez is the biggest star. These core principles would unite the Portuguese and, more importantly, pacify them. Salazar brought a sense of calm to a country in political turmoil. During World War II, his stock rose as he masterfully maintained neutrality, playing the belligerents against each other and filled Portuguese coffers with gold, just as the fields of Europe were filling with blood. Salazar had saved Portugal from financial ruin and now from war. A giant statue of Christ, evocative of the Cristo Rey in Rio de Janeiro, was erected across the river from Lisbon as thanks to God for sparing Portugal from the horrors of war. But the people knew who really deserved the credit. The Portuguese people were richer and safer than ever. So long as you didn't openly oppose the regime or insist on too many human rights, life could be quite good in Portugal. What could possibly go wrong? That's called foreshadowing. The world was changing. Following World War II, the age of the empire was coming to a close. The global conflict had cast a bright light on the horror of foreign occupation. Countries that had suffered under the rule of the Axis powers now struggled to justify their own colonial holdings. Salazar didn't struggle with this. 
To him, Portugal was still an empire, and an empire needs colonies. The Portuguese were the rulers of Angola, Mozambique, Cape Verde, Guinea-Bissau, São Tomé and Príncipe, Macau, East Timor, and Goa, lands that made up an empire that covered a quarter of the globe. Should Portugal release them, what would they, and Portugal, be reduced to? Without an empire, the legacies of Henry the Navigator, Bartholomew Diaz, and Vasco da Gama would be lost. The age of discoveries, immortalized in the poetry of Camões, would be relegated to the dusty archives of the past. The heroes of the sea, the noble people of Portugal, a once mighty empire. If Portugal lost its colonies, she'd be nothing more than a poor little country, a pimple on the Iberian Peninsula, a forgotten corner of Europe. It was unthinkable. Seeking to temper the growing dissent in the colonies, Portugal granted various amounts of autonomy to them, although this was much more symbolic than actualized, with a strong imperial hand keeping hold over these distant lands. But history marches onwards. The independence movements in these far-off lands were not going to be shaken by whether Portugal agreed to their independence or not. Inspired by people all over the world who were throwing off the shackles of their colonial masters, groups of people in Portugal's various colonies armed themselves and began their push for independence. The colonies were all overseas, and these wars were known in Portugal and in Portuguese as the Ultramar, the Overseas Wars. The Ultramar War, sometimes called the Portuguese Colonial War, or depending, of course, on your perspective, the Wars of Liberation, began in earnest in 1961. That is, Portugal mobilized its troops to repress the rebellions. While the other European colonial powers were loosening their grip on their overseas populations, Portugal was tightening the reins on hers. The country's reputation began to suffer on the world stage. As the years ticked on, what had begun as a relatively small military operation to quash the nascent independence movements grew in scale and scope. At the outset of the war, the Portuguese had 79,000 men in arms. By 1974, the size of the armed forces had almost tripled to 217,000. Thousands of young men avoided conscription by fleeing to France, the US, and elsewhere. By 1970, the number of Portuguese people living in France jumped to 700,000 from 20,000 11 years before. Even today, you can't walk around Paris or Marseille without noticing the large Portuguese populations. The wars would ultimately last 13 years, 2 months, and 3 weeks, with at least 100,000 casualties on both sides, 50,000 of which were just civilian casualties in Mozambique alone. As they entered their second decade, the conflicts would ultimately come to consume 40% of the national budget and touch the lives of every Portuguese person. In 1968, Salazar suffered a stroke and was fully and forever incapacitated. It was expected that he would die soon and therefore was quietly replaced as prime minister. Somehow, he didn't die. No one could bring themselves to tell him that he was no longer in charge and so he continued to meet his ministers, take meetings and hold audiences. It was all an absurd theater for the aging and increasingly unwell dictator. Two years later, the curtain fell, and Antonio de Oliveira Salazar was dead at the age of 81. He was buried according to his wishes in a plain, ordinary grave in the small village of Vimeiro, where he was born. He had ruled Portugal for over 30 years. So as far as he knew, he was still the head of government right up until his death in 1970. His Estado Novo, however, continued in the hands of his successor, Marcelo Caetano. This was a man who had been by Salazar's side for years. Although he had experience in administering the state, his name did not carry the same weight that his predecessors had. 
He did, however, carry on his shoulders the same issues of national importance, namely the growing discontent around the Ultramar Wars. It was against this backdrop that the seeds of dissent began to sprout. The rumblings of revolution started among a small group of low-ranked leftist army officers, wary after 13 years of war and more than five decades of authoritarian rule, they formed a conspiracy called the Armed Forces Movement, or MFA, with one aim, to overthrow the government. The revolution began at 5 to 11 p.m. on the evening of April 24, 1974. A song began to play on the radio, a song called E Depois do Adeus, or And After the Goodbye, which had been Portugal's last place entry for the Eurovision Song Contest. Any late-night radio listeners wouldn't necessarily suspect a thing, but it was a secret message to the MFA. At the artillery school in Vendas Novas, a group of young officers heard the song and left their rooms, guns in hand, and burst into their commander's office. In the stunned silence, one revolutionary exclaimed, quote, Porra! Fuck! Someone tell the commander he's under arrest! End quote. The revolution had begun. At 12.25 a.m., another song went out across the airwaves. Grandula Vila Morena by Zeca Afonso. This would have turned some heads. The song had been banned for its themes of fraternity and equality and power to the people and overall communist vibes. The song begins with marching boots and then the soft tones of a man singing. Grandula, Vila Morena, Grandula swarthy town, land of fraternity. It is the people who lead inside of you, O city. It is the people who lead, land of fraternity. Grandula, swarthy town, on each corner, a friend, in each face, equality. Grandula, swarthy town. What a song. What a fucking great song. This was the signal the MFA were waiting for to take over the strategic points around the country. They moved swiftly and quietly and precisely, and within three hours, they had taken over television and radio stations, military headquarters, and began to take over Lisbon itself. By 4.20 a.m., the Lisbon airport was under their control. Within a few hours, the captains of April had effectively taken over the country. At 3.12 a.m., journalist Joaquim Furtado was hard at work at the Radio Club Português when he was surprised by the sudden appearance of armed troops of the MFA. The mood shifted from tense to a, quote, contained joy, unquote, when they told him what was going on. At 4.26, Furtado read the first announcement on the radio. Here is the command post of the Armed Forces Movement. The Portuguese Armed Forces calls on all the inhabitants of the city of Lisbon to retreat to their homes, where they must be kept with the utmost calm. We sincerely hope that the gravity of the hour we live in is not sadly marked by any personal accident, to which we appeal to the common sense of the commands of the militarized forces in order to avoid any confrontation with the armed forces movement. Such a confrontation, in addition to being unnecessary, could only lead to serious individual losses that would mourn and create divisions among the Portuguese, which must be avoided at all costs. This message was followed by the national anthem which is itself a call to arms. Literally, it ends with the refrain, to arms, to arms. Heroes of the Sea, 
noble race, valiant and immortal nation. Now is the hour to rise up high once more, Portugal's splendor. From out the mists of memory, O homeland, we hear the voices of your great forefathers that shall lead you on to victory. To arms, to arms, on land and sea. To arms, to arms, to fight for our homeland. To march against the enemy guns. Throughout the day, the MFA continued to make announcements, appealing to the regime to refrain from violence and reasserting their commitment to the non-violent overthrow of the establishment. They ordered that all military forces retreat to their barracks. For the first time in 48 years, these Buetas were hearing a broadcast that wasn't subject to the laws and censorship of the Estado Novo. Liberation was coming. It was here. Despite the MFA command that these Buetas remain calmly in their homes, Thousands of citizens began to stream into the streets, cheering on the soldiers who many saw as liberators. A 40-year-old woman called Celeste Cairo was working in a restaurant that just so happened to be celebrating their first anniversary on the 25th of April. The story goes that the restaurant had planned to give a glass of port wine to all their male customers and a carnation to the females. When Celeste got to work, the owner told her to go home. There was a revolution going on. But before leaving, she should go by the warehouse and take some carnations. It'd be a shame to just let them wilt. Celeste took a pile of white and red carnations and made her way to the center of the city where she came across the revolutionary tanks. She asked a soldier what was going on. He responded, quote, We're on our way to Carmo Square to arrest Marcelo Caetano. This is a revolution. End quote. They told her they'd been there since the early morning. He asked her for a cigarette, but she had none. She wanted to give the soldiers some food, but the shops were all closed, so she gave him the only thing she had, a carnation. The soldier took one and put the flower in the barrel of his rifle. Celeste continued giving carnations to soldiers she came upon. The symbol spread and more and more soldiers were bearing the flowers. The carnation in the barrel became a symbol for the nonviolent aims of the revolution and eventually became the name of the entire event itself, the Carnation Revolution. You would expect a military coup to be bloody. The risk of bloodshed was high. Hot-headed soldiers with guns and tanks took their places on both sides. However, the Carnation Revolution was essentially a bloodless coup, at least on the side of the revolutionaries. A small exception, when the headquarters of the PID, or secret police, were surrounded by revolutionary civilians, the officers fired into the crowd, killing four. These were the only victims of the revolution, or rather, the last gasps of the sputtering regime. The streets of Lisbon are quite narrow, but stand there and witness a 49-ton, 11-foot-wide and 27-foot-long American-built M47 Patton tank rumble down the street and they become downright claustrophobic. The 15-foot barrel makes quite an impression, and with a crewman on the 50 caliber M2 machine gun mounted on the roof, you know they mean business. They call tanks the cavalry, which is almost cute. Now imagine not one, but two of these growling beasts trundling along at a not insignificant 60 kilometers an hour, long barrel out front like a nose, sniffing, hunting their prey. These are the loyalists. They're coming to squash the rebellion. 
The civilian crowds couldn't resist standing around, waiting for the standoff. A quick burst from the roof-mounted 50 cal machine gun sent them running. At 9.35 a.m., they arrived in the center of the city and squared off with the revolutionaries who were just 50 meters away and, holy hell, it turns out they had a couple of tanks of their own. The loyalist brigadier ordered his men to fire on the rebellious troops down the road. These rebels who wore the same uniform, not the enemy that they'd been trained to fight, their own brothers in arms. The gunner refused to fire. He was promptly arrested. A rebel officer called Lieutenant Alfredo Assunção walked across the no-man's land, hands up, to negotiate with the loyalists. The brigadier said he didn't speak with insolent lieutenants and hit the officer. Then he ordered his men to fire on the man, but again they refused. What do you call a leader without followers? Just a guy taking a walk. The brigadier smartly returned to his car and drove off. The Achilles heel of the dictatorship was the unwillingness of brother to fire upon brother. It doesn't always work that way. With the supposed loyalists unwilling to fire on their compatriots, the revolution continued almost unhindered. Loyalists surrendered or changed sides. By 12.30 p.m., the revolutionary forces successfully besieged the barracks of the National Republican Guard, where Prime Minister Marcelo Caetano had taken refuge since the early hours of the day. Negotiations began for his surrender. After three hours with no success, warning shots were shot at the building. Tensions were high. At this point, Marcelo Caetano was holed up in the building, protected by armed troops of the loyal National Republican Guards. Outside, they were besieged by the troops and armored cars of the MFA. The MFA, in turn, were now surrounded by more loyalists. It did nothing to calm the mood when, at 1.30 in the afternoon, a gunship helicopter flew overhead. An hour later, the loyalists were surrounded by yet another layer of armed soldiers, this time loyal to the revolution. Meanwhile, the square outside the barracks began to fill with civilians chanting slogans and singing songs. Across the city, it is estimated that 200,000 civilians came out. That means that a quarter of the city turned out to watch the revolution. They chanted, the people united will never be defeated. It was clear that the clock had run out on the regime. However, in a last grasp at dignity, Caetano declared that he would only surrender to a general. The MFA was able to convince General Spinola, who made his way to the square and accepted the surrender of Caetano. The former dictator was taken by armored car into the square, where the crowd was chanting by their thousands, victory, victory, victory. He was taken to the MFA command post and detained until the next day when he fled into exile. Six years later, he died in Rio de Janeiro. He never again stepped foot in Portugal. Over the next few days, the prison cells in Caxias, which had held political prisoners, now held the overthrown members of the regime. The Estado Novo was over, and nobody saw it coming. The international community had no idea what had just happened. In the following days, the world's press descended on Lisbon. One reporter asked Salgueiro Maia, one of the leaders of the revolution, what had changed. What can you do now that you could not do last week? Well, I can uh, exactly say what I think. And uh, do what I want to do, uh, with no fear of the authorities, the, the secret police. José Pires, founder of the Writers' Union, told the reporter. I'm 48, you know. 
and I was born right in the same year when Salazar took the power. And I've never seen liberty, freedom in my country. It's the first time. One of the icons of Lisbon is its bright red bridge, reminiscent of the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. Opened in 1966, a large sign proclaimed its name, Salazar Bridge. Newly free Lisboetas took to the sign with paint and crossed out the name of the already dead and now overthrown ruler and painted a new name, 25th of April Bridge. Today, the 25th of April is a national holiday. I was born in a free and democratic Lisbon. Most of my friends around the world were born into freedom too. It's hard to imagine life without it. While the next decades of Portuguese history would not always be easy, they still celebrate freedom. The main avenue in my hometown is called Liberty Avenue, named after the revolution. The Carnation Revolution brought about the end of the longest dictatorship in Western Europe, as well as the downfall of the Portuguese Empire. Portugal would soon become democratic again, but many of the former colonies would struggle with their newfound independence. Some, like Angola and Mozambique, became theaters for the proxy conflicts of the Cold War, with the USA and the USSR funding opposite sides in civil wars that would last for decades. In Angola, the civil war would only end in 2002. In Mozambique, there are still violent clashes. So is this a happy ending? It depends on your perspective. History is complicated. We like to think in terms of good and evil. Salazar came to power as the country was falling apart. He turned it around. He spared the country from a world war and then dragged it into a colonial one. His focus on the three Fs of Fatima, football, and Fadu hindered Portuguese development, so by the time they shook off his rule, the country was a few decades behind. Funnily enough, on May 13, 2017, a democratic Portugal would again celebrate the three Fs. It just so happened that on that day, the anniversary of the miracle that made Fatima the important pilgrimage city it is, the Pope came to visit, just as football club Sporting Lisbon Benfica won a triple for the first time and Salvador Sobral wowed international audiences and won Portugal their first Eurovision Song Contest ever. While he technically didn't sing Fadu, why let the truth get in the way of a good story? So now, Portugal is free and democratic. But if we've learned anything, it's that we can't take that for granted. Stay tuned for more revolutions. This is the Coup de Pod. Signing off. Oh, oh, man, I've, what is going on? I wake up here, I come in just to do a usual podcast about some story of rebellion or resistance. I, there's a, a commotion at the door. I get knocked out and I wake up and the podcast has been done. And I don't know who that, oh, there's a card here. Hang on. Oh, it's got a name on it. Oh, it's a Portuguese name. Geert Syllabus. Doesn't sound very Portuguese. We want to give a big thanks to the wonderful Geert for coming in and taking over the pod for that one revolutionary episode. And a big thank you to all the listeners who have been following us for the last year. Yes, when you are listening to this, We have been going for a year. We have As you can tell, Julian is very excited. We have decided that we fucking love doing podcasts. So we're going to keep going into the next year. 
So once more, a final big thank you to everyone out there and you'll be hearing from us once again in 2018. This has been a production by Julian Smith and Joe Wegasani. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>